Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Just a quick side note before this video begins. For some reason, my microphone is really messed up in this, so I apologize for that in advance. Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. Today's episode is going to be yet another solved case, but it isn't for my Curious Case series. Every month... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm going to be posting one episode covering cults as part of a new series, Cult Cults. We're going to be delving deep into the world of the lesser known cults and bring to light the truth of what happened. So get comfortable, grab a cup of tea and get ready. This is Cult Cults. Fall River, Massachusetts is a quiet city in Bristol County with a population of just under 90,000 residents. The city is most well known for its non-profit maritime museum and war memorial, Battleship Cove, which is actually the largest collection of World War II naval vessels in the world. The Maritime Museum was established in August of 1965 in Fall River and the residents were over the moon with more than 250,000 visitors coming to the museum in its first year of operation. Though not 14 years later, the residents of Fall River would be plagued with rumours of satanic cults and devil worshippers in the area. And when a 17-year-old girl was found dead on the 13th of October 1979, the rumours turned into widespread panic. But this wasn't the first time a major tragedy struck Fall River. Almost a hundred years earlier, in August of 1892, the residents of the city woke up to discover a brutal double homicide had taken place. Lizzie Borden stood accused of the axe murders of both her parents. Interestingly, Lizzie was acquitted of the merger charges, but the story remains a commonly discussed topic in local pop culture mythology. As a quick side note, today Lizzie Borden's home, where her parents were murdered, has become a bed and breakfast museum dedicated to the tale. Back in 1979, the story of Lizzie Borden and what happened to her family was still a much discussed topic. 
Some people believed that Lizzie Borden had become possessed by the devil, which made her do it, despite her acquittal. Others believe Lizzie Borden's parents had been killed as part of a satanic ritual by a cult practicing in the local woods. So when the discovery of a 17-year-old girl's body was made, the somewhat unfounded theory began to circulate that the devil-worshipping cults had returned to Fall River. At 5.30am on the 13th of October 1979, a couple of women jogging along the track at the Fall River High School discovered the 17-year-old's body laying face down in a pool of blood underneath the bleachers, and they immediately contacted the police. When investigators arrived on the scene, they noticed that the girl was naked from the waist down. The girl's wrists had been bound in front of her with fishing line, and a medical examination confirmed the investigators were suspicions. There were signs of sexual assaults and torture. She had sustained multiple skull fractures along with numerous lacerations to the head. The girl's face had been completely mutilated and nearby bloodied rocks began to give the detectives clues as to what had happened. The authorities began to collect all the nearby rocks and stones that had blood splatterings and took them into evidence. The police theorised that the rocks had been used as one of the murder weapons. But why had this happened, and who was the girl? An autopsy was conducted on the Jane Doe's body, which determined that she had further sustained numerous lacerations on her arms and torso from a blade, a secondary murder weapon. The investigators began to theorise that whoever had done this to the girl had wanted her dead, and had begun the attack with a blade before progressing to bludgeoning with a rock to, quote, finish the job. Fortunately for the Jane Doe, the authorities were able to identify her as 17-year-old Doreen Levesque. Doreen was from the nearby city of New Bedford and had run away from her family home after dropping out of high school. Not all too much information is available online to give us a solid understanding of who Doreen was, her hopes and dreams, and the exact circumstances that led her to running away. But what we do know is that after leaving New Bedford, Doreen turned to sex work in order to support herself. Doreen had been described by those who knew her as a very beautiful young woman who didn't have any real enemies. Her parents would later describe Doreen as being a rebel who was determined to go her own way. She would frequently get into trouble at both home and school, but nothing serious enough to warrant too much concern. Unfortunately for Doreen, she didn't live long enough to take a different path in life. At her funeral, a letter that Doreen had written to Jesus was read aloud. It read, Dear Jesus, I hope I spelled your name right. Thank you for everything you've done for me and anything you might do. Someday I would like to be with you in heaven. If I have trouble following you, I would like for you to help me. This was read alongside poetry that she had also written. The medical examiner that had conducted the autopsy on Doreen had suggested that it seems like more than one person was involved in the homicide due to the use of multiple weapons. Investigators also found indications which they perceived as potentially ritualistic, leading them to believe that their worst fears had come true. The satanic cult had returned to River Falls, though they knew that the satanic cult was just a myth, rumour and nothing more. The police were at a loss 
boss for who might have done this to Doreen, and so they decided to go to the streets where Doreen worked to uncover more information, any rumours on the streets or anything like that. The police had a handful of informants that worked on Bedford Street, the street at the time that was well known as a hub for sex work. However, after several months of trying to obtain even a whisper of information, the police were unsuccessful. Doreen's case went cold. That was until the 26th of January 1980, when another body was discovered. A dog walker was walking his beagle along a path behind an abandoned printing factory when the dog took scent of something and began to rummage through the undergrowth. The dog walker quickly realised that the dog had begun eating something, thinking that maybe the dog had found a dead animal. He tugged on the dog's leash to pull it back. That was when the dog walker realised that the dog had been eating at something with clothes. The dog walker soon realised that laying before him was a frozen, discoloured body of a woman. Winter temperatures had actually preserved the remains, preventing too much decomposition. Comparisons are quickly drawn between Doreen and this victim. Both were found partially nude, both had their hands tied together, and both had their skulls crushed by rocks. Interestingly, the investigators noted that the latest victim was lying on top of a huge stone, which they actually compared to that of an altar. Unlike with Doreen, the coroner was unable to find any evidence of sexual assaults, though small shards of concrete were discovered in the victim's hair, which indicated that the primary murder weapon was that of a concrete block or brick. The murdered woman was soon identified to be 19-year-old Barbara Reposa. Just a quick side note, some sources list Barbara as being 19 years old at the time of her death, while others list her as being 22 years old. Barbara, like Doreen, was a sex worker who worked on the same street as Doreen. It's important to note that Barbara had actually been reported missing about a month after Doreen's remains had been discovered by her boyfriend at the time, 44-year-old Andy Maltias. Andy had come into the Fall River Police Station with concerns for his girlfriend's safety and mentioned something about a satanic cult. He also claimed to have information pertaining to the murder of Doreen, so the police arranged to have an interview with Andy to try and find out exactly what he knew. Andy was actually known to the police officers in Fall River. He was a paedophile, a sexual sadist, a violent rapist, and had recently devoted himself to Christianity. He started his interview with the police by saying, quote, Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. Once I worshiped Satan, now I worship Jesus. The investigators made notes of the strange way the interview had started, and little did they know, the interview was about to get a lot stranger. Andy informed the investigators that at the time of Barbara's disappearance, both he and Barbara were practicing Satanists. It's important to note at this point in the episode that when I speak about Satanism and Satanists, I'm not referring to the Church of Satan religion, which is actually a very peaceful faith. You must draw a clear distinction between the Church of Satan and how I discuss this form of Satanism in this episode, and you'll realize towards the end why Satanism in this case is described and painted as being a stereotypically violent and disturbing manner of worshiping pure evil. Going forward in this episode, I will be using the term stereotypical Satanism, also known as theistic 
I don't know how you pronounce it, um, say, I'm going to say stereotypical because that's what I can pronounce, uh, to avoid confusion. Stereotypical Satanism being the stuff you see portrayed in horror movies with sacrifices and people chanting in the middle of the night around an altar of blood and atheistic Satanism being the peaceful new religious movement, aka the Church of Satan. If you want to learn more about the Church of Satan, you can find a link in my sources down below. Andy described to the investigators that he and Barbara were practicing stereotypical Satanists who were involved in a local cult. He also revealed to the detectives that Doreen had also been involved in the local stereotypical Satanist cult too prior to her death, but Andy claimed to have no first-hand knowledge of her murder, though he did state that he believed the local cult to be responsible for her death. Of course, the detectives listened in a state of disbelief. Was this the ramblings of a crazy man who wanted attention, or was this a nightmarish tale of reality? Aware of the understandable skepticism that the police had with Andy's story, Andy proposed that he arrange a meeting between the investigators and two other members of the stereotypical Satanist cult. With no other leads to go on, the investigators decided to entertain Andy and accepted his offer. And a few days later, detectives found themselves sitting at the other side of the table from two of the alleged cult members, Karen Marsden and Robin Murphy. The two women appeared to be complete opposites of one another. Karen was a 20-year-old single mother who was nervous and emotional, whereas Robin was a 17-year-old girl who appeared cold, deliberate, and calculated. Both Robin and Karen conducted sex work in Fall River, with Karen being a runaway and substance abuser, while Robin was an aspiring pimp and tough street kid. The investigators took note of Robin's highly domineering personality and apparent high intelligence. Robin remained quiet throughout the interview, seeming to almost study the investigators while Karen did all of the talking. Karen reveals that she was roommates with Robin and that they were lovers on occasion, but that they weren't really all too aware or connected to Andy. He was just somebody that they knew from around. As the interview progressed, Karen became more and more emotional, rambling about anything and everything that came to her mind. That was until she finally broke, through heavy sobs and tears while Robin sat emotionless next to her. Karen told the investigators, quote, Carl Drew killed Doreen Levesque. The detectives had one question, who was Carl Drew? Carl was actually known to the authorities as being a 26-year-old pimp with a violent reputation. He was born and raised on a small farm in New Hampshire and had a very rough upbringing. Carl endured hard labor and physical abuse throughout his childhood and upbringing. His father was an alcoholic who made Carl do all sorts of dangerous and traumatic things, such as lowering Carl by the ankles into a well to remove dead rats. Eventually, after suffering this abuse, Carl decided enough was enough, and so he ran away from home at age 14. He eventually arrived in Fall River, where he found a home in the city's criminal underground, becoming involved with drug addicts, sex workers, and gangs. At the age of 26, Carl operated his own sex work ring on Bedford Street in Fall River, and he even had a connection to the murdered 17-year-old Doreen, because he was her pimp. 
Carl fit the criminal profile of the perpetrator, but the police were missing one thing. They had nothing that actually linked Carl to the murder of Doreen. The only shred of a link they had was the testimony of a nervous and emotional substance abuser, Karen. The investigators decided that their best bet was to bring Karen back in for questioning to ascertain more details from her. The police offered Karen witness protection for her cooperation in the interview, though she refused to give up any more details. Karen did say one thing to the detectives that stuck with them, however. Quote, if I turn up dead, Carl Drew was responsible. Over the next couple of weeks, the investigators kept in contact with Karen just in case she changed her mind. They wanted to know as much as they could about the now nicknamed Fall River Cults. One of the interviews that was conducted with Karen was of particular interest to the police. Karen told the detectives in floods of tears that, quote, I'm a good person, I believe in God. She went on to tell the authorities that she expected the consequences of her betrayal to the cult to be severe, potentially life-threatening. Karen described the River Full cult as being spearheaded by Carl Drew. Carl had organised his sex work ring as a stereotypical satanic cult, which he allegedly ruled with an iron fist. He called himself the son of Satan. He would threaten the girls that worked for him with, quote, Satan will take his toll. Now, Karen was a devoted Christian woman, and this threat to her meant more than just a violent death, but it also meant that her soul would be sacrificed and thrown into the pits of hell for eternity. At this point in the investigation, another sex worker called Carol Fletcher had come forward to the authorities with more information about her own ties to the cult. It was then that Carol and Karen took the police to the Freetown State Forest. The two women claimed that it was within this forest that the Fall River cults conducted their meetings at night. Carol and Karen walked through the forest until they reached a green algae-covered pond. Karen explained that it was in that pond that Cole told her he would dump her body after, quote, injecting battery acid into her veins and offering her soul to Satan if she were to speak to the authorities. Another woman actually came forward to the authorities who worked for Carl and told them that Carl had created and planned a retribution against the woman who had gotten her arrested for prostitution. Allegedly, quote, he said he was going to kill her for it, tie her to a tree to be sacrificed and pour warm blood from a live goat all over her face. These testimonies collectively building against Carl were fairly damning. The authorities just needed that final piece of solid evidence to connect him directly to either of the murders. Though it soon became clear that Carl wasn't the only key player within the Fall River cult. Karen's roommate and lover, 17-year-old cold and calculated Robin Murphy, had a dark side that was slowly being revealed to the detectives. As it turns out, way before the Fall River cult had even formed, Robin had a direct interest in everything occult. Karen and others who knew Robin described her to the authorities as being psychologically unstable and having a short temper, which often ended with violence. Was Robin the leader of the Fall River cult? 
What was her involvement? Before the detectives could ponder on these questions any further, Andy Miltias, Barbara's boyfriend, contacted the investigators, claiming to have received details of the murder in a psychic dream. There exists transcripts of the interview with authorities um, that they had with Andy regarding a psychic dream, but they are rather graphic and violent, so I won't be discussing them in detail in this episode. What's important to note about the transcripts, however, is that Andy described details that he wouldn't have known unless he was there at the crime scene when the murder had taken place. He revealed the exact positioning of Barbara's body, where her remains had been discovered, her time of death, the way she had been killed, and several other details about the murder, all of this information being information that was not public knowledge at that point. Despite Andy's claims that this newfound information was due to a psychic dream, the police were far less convinced. Andy was arrested and charged with the homicide of Barbara. After all, he was the last person to have seen her alive, and he knew crucial information that wasn't available to the public. But did Andy actually carry out the murder? Was he just a witness? What was his role? And what role did Carl and Robin have in the killing? A few days after Andy had been arrested, detectives were contacted by an unexpected informant who offered to testify against Andy as a witness to the murder this informant being Robin Murphy. Robin claims to have been present for the killing of Doreen and of Barbara. In exchange for her cooperation, Robin made a deal with the authorities to be placed in protective custody and to be granted immunity in both of the homicide cases. Robin claims that Andy had killed his girlfriend Barbara after he found out that she was cheating on him with another man. Robin had been with Andy and Barbara on the night of her death, partying together and driving around the city. Allegedly, at some point in the night, Andy and Barbara began arguing. It was then that Andy pulled the car in behind the abandoned factory and pulled Barbara out of the vehicle before sexually assaulting her. When Barbara cried out for help, Andy began to beat her. He started with his fists and ended with a rock. Following the violent assault, Robin and Andy drove off in Andy's car, leaving Barbara behind to find her own way home. But we know now that Barbara never made it home and she succumbed to her injuries. Robin had been hesitant to come forward to the authorities with this information as she feared retribution from Andy, believing that he would do the same to her if she spoke to the police. This testimony, along with Andy's previous criminal history, was enough to put him behind bars for the remainder of his life. You may have noticed, though, that there exists several discrepancies between Robin's story and the findings at the crime scene. For instance, Barbara had her hands tied together when she was found, and there was no evidence found by the medical examiner of any sexual assault taking place. Further, Robin had failed to explain the numerous lacerations that Barbara, like Doreen, had sustained. Robin also failed in this testimony to explain the existence of Carl Drew's stereotypical Satanist cult. 
did that cult even exist? Robin then went on to explain what exactly had happened to Doreen. She claims that the two murders were not in any way connected, despite the forensic evidence telling a contradicting story. The only identical factor, according to Robin, in both murders was the fact that she had been present. According to Robin's testimony in Doreen's case, Doreen had been murdered as, quote, an offering of the soul to Satan. And Robin pins the murder on Carl Drew. Apparently, Doreen left Carl's cult shortly before her untimely death with the hopes of working alone, but leaving the Fall River cult wasn't something Carl would let you do. Robin went on to explain that Doreen had a debt to Satan that needed to be paid, her soul. And so, Carl set about tracking down Doreen and forced her into his car. Joining Carl and Doreen in the car was Robin, Karen, and another man called Willie Smith, someone who was allegedly also part of the Fall River cult. Once Doreen was in the car, they began driving seemingly with no destination in mind. Carl told Doreen on this journey that she couldn't afford to work the streets alone before he physically assaulted her. The group then pulled in behind the high school and Carl and Willie Smith grabbed Doreen and dragged her under the bleachers. According to Robin, she and Karen remained in the car. She heard no screams and insisted that she had seen nothing. After an unknown period of time, Robin claims that Carl and Willie Smith returned to the car without Doreen and the group left. Robin asked Carl what had happened to Doreen, to which she replied, quote, you don't want to know. This account of Doreen's death had more discrepancies in it than in the first. Doreen had been brutally and savagely attacked, which would have warranted loud screams and pleas for help. The police decided that they wanted to talk with Karen about Robin's account to see if there was any truth behind it. However, on the 9th of February, 1980, Karen was reported as missing. Two months later, in April of 1980, a man stumbled across the top half of a human skull while clearing a section of land. After reporting it to the authorities, the police ordered a detailed search of the area to try to uncover any further evidence. The police's search uncovered the decomposing remains of three cats, sheep bones, and clumps of human hair. They further discovered some jewellery, a singular high-heeled shoe, and a piece of a woman's sweater that had been torn off. After bringing the school back to the lab, forensic tests revealed that it belonged to Karen Marsden. Karen had been insistent with expressing her fears to the authorities that she would be the next victim in the Fall River Cult's murderous rampage. She knew that she was to be sacrificed next by the cults. It wasn't long after the news broke that Karen had been found dead that a woman came forward with information that would change the investigation on its head. The woman was a former sex worker called Maureen, and she told the authorities that she had hosted a number of stereotypical satanic gatherings for the Fall River cult in her apartments. It also transpired that she was also Robin Murphy's ex-lover. That was when Maureen unveiled a critical piece of information. During a phone call with Robin, Robin had admitted to murdering Karen. Another woman also came forward and claims that Robin Murphy and Carl Drew had both been responsible for the murder of Karen. According to this witness, she had driven the cult out to the secluded wooded area where the sacrifice had taken place. Robin Murphy had, as part of her witness protection agreements with the authorities, 
been relocated to Dallas, Texas as they waited for Andy, Barbara's boyfriend, to go to trial. Upon learning this new information, the authorities issued an arrest warrant for Robin in connection to Karen's murder, and she was immediately brought back to Fall River to undergo questioning. Carl Drew and another man were also indicted and arrested on suspicion of their involvement in the killing. It was during Robin's interrogation that she finally broke down and revealed the truth. Quick side notes, Robin would actually change her story a few times during the trial and during parole hearings later on, so this isn't the whole truth, but it is likely the closest we'll get to it. According to Robin, Karen Marsden had become way too much of a liability. There were rumours that Karen had been speaking to the police, and Robin knew that Karen had been a witness to the murder of Doreen. Robin and Carl Drew had an emergency meeting to try and figure out what they should do next, and together they decided that the only thing they could do was to get rid of her. And so Robin, Carl Drew, and one of Carl's friends, who is called Carl Davis, but we'll refer to him as Davis in this episode. Side note, it was actually Davis that was the other man indicted and arrested in connection to Karen's death, all took part in the murder. Robin claims that Carl Drew forced her to take part, but it seems this was just an attempt to cover her own back. The group picked up Karen and drove to a wooded area before Robin dragged Karen from the car by her hair. Robin, Carl Drew, Davis, and the witness from earlier who had reported Robin and Carl Drew as Karen's murderers all took part in a ritualistic stoning of Karen, after which Carl Drew took a knife and cut one of Karen's fingers off to, quote, make her feel pain. Carl then broke Karen's neck with his bare hands. Robin then took a knife and, under the alleged command of Carl Drew, slit Karen's throat. It was then that Carl and Davis fully beheaded Karen and began to use her decapitated head as a ball to kick around. After all of that, Carl Drew took the knife and carved an X into Karen's torso while speaking in tongues, allegedly offering her soul up to Satan. Following which, he dipped his thumb in Karen's blood and made an X on Robin's forehead. Apparently, it was then that Robin was allegedly made to perform oral sex on Karen's remains. Finally, Karen's beheaded remains were dumped into the woods, covered in gasoline, and burnt to ashes. The trials against Andy Maltias, Carl Drew, Robin Murphy, and Davis were a media frenzy. Headlines ran screaming of Satanistic sacrifices, torture, and murder. Andy's trial was the first out of the group to take place, and as a result of it, in January of 1981, he was found guilty of first-degree murder of his girlfriend Barbara Raposa, and was handed a life sentence without the possibility of parole. According to some sources, the trial against Andy was predominantly based on Robin Murphy's testimony against him, and eventually Andy died of cancer in 1998 behind bars. Robin Murphy's trial was interesting, to say the least. Her immunity deal was upheld for her involvement in Barbara and Doreen's murders, and so she wasn't prosecuted in those cases. Her lawyer convinced the courts that Robin, who was 17 at the time of the murders, had been under the powerful influence of the Fall River cult, which saw her actually being allowed to plead guilty to second-degree murder in exchange for further testimony against the rest of the group. Ultimately, Robin Murphy was given a life sentence with the possibility of parole for her part in the crimes, and after serving 24 years, she was released in June of 2004. 
Robin actually went on to break her parole conditions and returned to prison seven years after her release, which is where I believe she remains to this day. The trial against Davis completely fell apart and he actually never ended up taking the stand for the trial for any of his involvement in the murders. Interestingly, he was actually arrested uh, a year after the trials for beating up a three-month pregnant woman and stabbing her in the head because she had knowledge that would implicate Davis and Robin in Karen's murder. David ended up serving seven years for the attack and is now, I believe, a free man. The final person in this case to be brought to trial was Carl Drew. Carl was found guilty of first-degree murder or for the murder of Karen Marsden and was given a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Carl has since attempted to appeal those charges, but none of his appeals have been successful. It's heartbreaking and important to note that the murder of Doreen Levesque never went to trial. Justice was never found for Doreen. We may never know the truth of what actually happened in the Fall River cult. Some believe the cult was a facade to provide justification for the murders. Others, a device to instill fear in Carl Drew's employees. Others believe they did actually worship Satan. The cult was sensationalized and almost glorified by the media's coverage in this case. It perhaps played a much smaller role than is made out to be. Whatever the case, complete justice was never truly found. But what do you think of this case? Let me know in the comment section down below. I wanted to start off the Cold Cults series with a bridge between my usual Curious Case series and the Cult series. In following episodes, we'll be delving deep into real cults and uncovering their deepest secrets. Follow me over on Instagram and Twitter. My handle on both platforms is at It's Joshua Miles. Make sure you subscribe to this channel and you've hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.